The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. I'd like to take a moment to pray for pray for Gary and uh, and for a few others in our body in this situation and uh, for some other things that have gone on around the country. It's been quite a week, hasn't it? So let's uh, let's come before God in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you, first of all, for the uh, healing that is going on in Gary's life. Thank you for the uh, surgery that went well, and, and um, we pray that you would continue to strengthen his body, uh, restore him to health and wholeness. Pray that you would continue to sustain Gary and Bev and the rest of the family through this trying time, through, the, through this, this trial. Father, I also want to take a moment just to name in our hearts those people in this body who we know who are going through similar, tri- similar trials. Let's just take a moment to lift them to the Father. Father, I want to pray for uh, the family of Solomon Harris and friends and the other students affected by him uh, taking his own life on, on, this, on the school grounds this week. We pray for, for hope even in this senselessness and uh, comfort and for healing. Father, we lift to you those uh, friends in West who have lost their loved ones and lost their homes. And Father, we pray for those in Boston who have uh, been injured or lost loved ones. And Father, we pray that in all of this chaos and darkness, we would see your sovereignty and we would see your light. Father, I just want to take a moment to pray for my mother-in-law, for Julia's mom, who is in her final days or hours, we don't know. And I pray, I plead with you, Father, that you would reveal yourself to her even, even in these final moments of her life. So, Father, we pray these things to you, the living God who hears our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you'd like to turn with me in your Bibles to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you uh, remember last week, and you may not remember last week, but uh, we, we were talking about uh, the, this idea that Jesus, not the hippie Jesus, and not, not Jesus the, the uh, legalist, but the Jesus, the one in the New Testament, is, is inviting you and he's inviting me to an entirely new way of being human. He's, he's calling us to become the kinds of people who will reflect God's image, God's justice, God's goodness, God's love, God's beauty into the world. That, that's what Jesus is inviting us to. Uh, and so he's inviting us not to follow a set of rules and he's not inviting us to follow our hearts, but Jesus is inviting us to follow him, to follow him into this new way of being human, into this new kind of person who will reflect God's image into the world. Uh, and so we talked about the fact that there is this process. As we set our hope on God, there's, it reveals itself in this training, this striving, this working, this training in godliness that Paul talks about here in Timothy. And, and so what we're going to do now, we're going to take a look at the rest of this chapter and, and look at well, what, what does this training, what part of us does this training in, involve? So the first couple of verses, and then we'll jump around a bit. Paul writes, the spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits 
and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared with a hot iron. We jump down to verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Well, training day part two. What do you think of? What do you think of when you think of uh, training in godliness or, or spiritual training? What do you think of? I'll tell you what I think of. And just so you know, this isn't just me being weird. This is what every guy in my age, who just because of the way we were brought up, this is, this is what we uh, think of. Right? This, this, is the, this is the very definition of spiritual training. Right? I used to dream about this as a kid. Right? Off in a swamp somewhere, preferably on the planet Dagobah, with Master Yoda giving instructions. Or, or it's Obi-Wan telling Luke, reach out with your feelings, Luke. This is spiritual training. Spiritual training is what happens when you're sitting in the lotus position, off in a cave somewhere on your own. Spiritual training is what happens when you are contemplating um, deep and mysterious questions like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? This is... I'm Korean Chinese, I'm allowed to do that. No offense, Jonathan. <laughs> so, so uh, this is, I think our culture ties uh, mystery and transcendence and the inexplicable to this idea of spiritual training or any type of spirituality. Our culture ties those things together. Well, so far, so good. I think our culture is onto something. I think they are. I think our culture is onto something. If we're going to talk about spiritual training, training in godliness here in the church, we're talking about becoming the kind of people who will reflect the living God into this world. There's got to be a transcendent, mysterious, inexplicable dimension to all of that. There has to be. We're talking about God. But, but then our culture, this thought leads to another thought Okay, in, in, our, in our culture. So, so this thought leads to another thought um, that... Our feelings and emotion and, um, and faith, these things are spiritual. And then our thoughts and intellect and reason, these things are not spiritual. These are unspiritual things. Our feelings and emotions and faith, these things are, are seen as pathways to genuine experiences of the transcendent, of the mysterious, of the inexplicable. Uh, things that you actually get to live, not, not just read about in a book, right? Um, and, and I've tried to figure this out. Perhaps, perhaps it's because our feelings are sometimes very hard to put into words. Do you ever find it difficult to put your feelings in words? Do you? You sometimes find it hard to put your emotions into words. Sometimes you just feel a certain way. You don't know why. You just do. And so perhaps feelings, by their very nature, seem to leave more room for mystery. They seem to leave more room for the inexplicable, for the transcendent. Whereas thoughts and intellect and reason, surely these things are about nailing things down. Uh, about, about, uh, they don't really leave much room for mystery. They shut down transcendence uh, and uh, they, they kill any spontane spontaneity. And they leave God as an idea in your head or maybe an idea in someone else's head that you read about in a book they wrote. Right? So, so our, culture is, our culture is very, very suspicious of, of what you might call organized religion and everything that comes along with that, right? The, the, this um, uh, official doctrine, um, correct teaching, 
uh, creedal faith. Our, our culture is very suspicious of all that, whereas at the same time remaining very, very open uh, to spirituality and, and to even to the idea that there might be a God. But, but we're going to discover this God through our own personal experiences, through our own feelings, through our own emotions. This is how it's going to happen. So I have to say that uh, this here this morning, very disappointing read, isn't it? This is very disappointing because Paul seems very concerned about what people are thinking and, uh, and, and how they're thinking about it. Paul seems concerned about what is shaping their thinking. When he talks about spiritual training, he's concerned about what is being taught and what they are teaching. He's, he's concerned about things like truth and creeds and doctrine and, 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 and dogma. If you take a, a look at uh, this, this section, he's concerned about things taught by demons, teachings that come through hypocritical liars. He's, verse 3 talks about those who know the truth. Verse 6, those brought up in the truths of the faith and good teaching. Verse 9, this is where he offers a kind of, this is what this is, a kind of creedal statement. Verse 11, he says, teach these things. Verse 13, devote yourselves to reading and teaching. Verse 16, he's concerned about doctrine. This is precisely the glossary of words that our culture bows up against and would never associate with authentic, genuine expressions of spirituality. Just wouldn't make those kinds of connections. In fact, our, I think our culture would raise their arms and say, oh, wait a second. Uh, doesn't all this talk of truth and doctrine and creeds and teaching, doesn't this really just, doesn't this kill, doesn't this kill uh, that opportunity to experience God through the transcendent? Doesn't it kill spontaneity? Doesn't it kill our feelings and emotions? Doesn't it shut all of that down? I want to spend some time this morning wrestling with those questions that our culture has. These are the cultural questions, and I want to do that because I don't, I don't want to just dismiss them offhand. I think they're genuine questions, and if we don't address them, they'll just be hanging over us, and they might actually get in the way of us hearing what Paul is saying. So as we wrestle with these questions, what I'm hoping is we're going to see more clearly exactly what Paul is and is not saying. Uh, so the first question is, does Paul leave room for mystery and transcendence? Second, does Paul leave room, any room for emotions and feelings with all this talk of truth and thinking and reading and teaching? And does he leave room for spontaneity? So first questions first. Does Paul leave room for mystery and transcendence? You know, this is a, a criticism of the church from our culture. I, I don't know if, if you know, but sometimes our culture looks at us, looks at the church, from the outside and says, you know, the trouble with you Christians, the trouble with you Jesus followers, training in godliness and all that, the trouble with, with the churches, you, you all think you've got all the answers. You think you've got everything nailed down. You think, you, can, you think that what you know, you know with 100% certainty and that you can wrap it all up in a nice uh, package with a uh, gift wrap with a little bow on top and here's reality wrapped up and handed to us. Well, we're not buying it. Now, that's one of the, whether you know it or not, that's one of the criticisms that the culture has of the church. Sometimes I feel this tension, not just between church and culture, but I sometimes feel it inside the church as well, between different generations. Did you ever feel that, ten do you ever feel that tension of how sometimes one generation thinks very differently to the other? And usually each successive generation thinks that they're the cure for all the stupidity of the previous generation, right? I know it's arrogant, right? But, but this, is, this is how it, how it goes. And, and so the younger, sometimes the younger generation looks at their older generation a bit judgmentally and critically and says, yeah, you know, that's right. You people, you always thought you had all the answers, everything nailed down, gift wrapped with a nice bow on top. And, and that's the trouble with you. And, and I think sometimes an, an older generation may look at this up-and-coming generation and think, what is the matter with you people? 
Nothing sacred. I mean, you question everything. You question everything and you don't believe in anything. That's the trouble with kids these days. This is, do you ever feel that tension? Even in the church and between church and culture. Well, it's very important that we don't impute these categories to Paul. That, that Paul does not fall into either of those stereotypes. So even as, as Paul comes along and he starts talking about creeds and doctrine and truth, right, and teaching and reading, right, as he talks about this stuff, um, Paul doesn't, isn't then saying, doesn't mean he's saying, we've got everything nailed down, we have all the answers, what we know we know with 100% certainty, and here's everything wrapped up, all reality with a nice bow on top. Here, take it. That, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul's a lot more nuanced than that. Um, Paul actually says elsewhere, he says, look, for now we see through a glass darkly. Now we see through a glass darkly. But then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. But for now what we know, we, we know partially. We know in part. We see through a glass darkly. This is why Paul can say in, in Romans, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. I mean, he, Paul is... Paul, even as Paul talks about truth and doctrine, right, he is well aware of the limitations of our own, what we can know. And so Paul, yes, is open to mystery. He's open to transcendence and the inexplicable. Absolutely he is. But then that doesn't mean that Paul succumbs to the despair of our own culture, our own generation, which tends to say, well, if we can't know everything, then we can't know anything. We know nothing, so we'll just make it up as we go along. But Paul doesn't do that either. Right? Paul says, look, there are some things, here are some things that we can know. These are some things we can know, and, and, uh, and just because we don't know it in the way that you do when you stick something under a microscope, hey, come on, there are other ways of knowing things, right? So Paul is open to transcendence. He's open to mystery and the inexplicable, but I think Paul would say something like this. I think Paul would say that it's only when you're rooted in truth, grounded in doctrine, shaped by good teaching, it's only when you're rooted in truth that we can even begin to appreciate just how mysterious things really are. Ah. Okay, so Paul's open to mystery and he's open to transcendence and, 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 uh, and all of that. Uh, but what about our feelings and emotions? Where, where does this fit in Paul's grand scheme of things? In fact, isn't all of this talk of teaching and truth and doctrine, isn't this your own emotional bent, Stephen? I mean, after all, we know you are one of those uh, emotionally stunted Brits who's out of touch with his feelings, right? Uh, have you, any of you seen this, uh, Seen this? It's on fridge magnets and posters and T-shirts all over the place these days. But the story behind it is quite interesting. Um, so, so this was a poster printed by the British government, thousands of them, uh, during World War II. And the idea was they were waiting for, th for things to get really, really bad. And if things got really bad in England during World War II, they were going to quickly pass these posters all over the place and uh, tell the British public to just calm down, you're overreacting, have another cup of tea or, or, or whatever. It's funny they thought that would even work, but um, so, so, you know, Britain gets blitzed, you know, there, there, there are a hundred tons of explosives dropped on, on England, 40,000 civilians were killed. In London alone, a million homes were destroyed. People had air raid shelters in their backyards. Fires took days to burn out. They sent the children out of the cities to go and live in the countryside to increase their chances of survival. Uh, but the government still refused to rele release these posters. Remember, they were waiting for things to get bad. And so, uh, so, so uh, they were, in the end, they had never actually used these posters because what they were doing is they were waiting for that, for that, uh, that moment where not, the Nazis were going to land and begin marching up the country and begin their occupation. That's when they thought they might need to tell the British public, calm down, you're overreacting. 
Um, so the point is, uh, we know the British are a bunch of you know, emotionally stunted people out of touch with their feelings. Um, this, this may be why Hollywood's formula for bad guys is always give them a British accent, bam, you got yourself a villain, right? This, this is why some of you still aren't quite sure about me, right? It's a, it's a little confusing, I know. The British are like that. But uh, the thing is, I'm actually half Armenian. So from my mum's side, right, I'm Armenian. And there may, you may not know many Armenians, um, but there's something you should know about them. And that is, we're all crazy. Okay? So, we, so we feel things, and we feel things deeply, and we wear our emotions on our sleeve, and we're very emotional a lot. We just are. That's just the way, the way we are. Um, so my point is this. Look, it has nothing to do with my emotional bent, and it has nothing to do with Paul's emotional bent. That's not what, this has everything to do with what, what is vital to us training in godliness, to us becoming the kind of people who will reflect God's goodness, God's justice, God's love, God's beauty into the world. Um, this is Paul's emphasis, not just in this particular chapter, but, but all over the place. Because Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your feelings. No, no, wait, wait, that's, that's wrong. Right? What does he say? He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says, take every feeling captive for Christ. Is that what he says? No, no, he says, take every thought captive for Christ. He says, feel what is right and true, pure and noble. No, he says... Think on what is right and true, pure, noble, excellent, and praiseworthy. He says, having the emotions and feelings of Christ. No, wait. He says, having the mind, having the mind of Christ. Whenever Paul talks about transformation, about this training in godliness, he's talk, he, this is his emphasis on thoughts and thinking and mind. Now, this doesn't then mean, and please just, just refrain from slapping this label on Paul too quickly here, okay? This doesn't then mean he's some sort of cold, aloof intellectual. He was an intellectual, actually, but he, he wasn't some cold, aloof intellectual who was out of touch with his own feelings and the emotions of everyone around him. That, that's it's just not the case. Um, for a start, Paul would never make these kinds of divisions in the first place, right? Paul, Paul would never come along and say, well, here are my feelings and emotions and, and, and all of that uh, and faith, and these things are spiritual, and here's my thoughts and thinking and, and my intellect, and these things are not spiritual, these are unspiritual. He would never make those kinds of divisions. Just because we rupture our own experience that way and create these kinds of chasms, right? Paul, Paul doesn't do that. Paul would look at us and say, what are you doing? That doesn't even make any sense, right? He, he, he's, he pulls these things together. In fact, if you look again closely at this chapter, what you'll see is that Paul is continually, the things that you and I would normally put under this category there or that category there, the things that we pull it separate, Paul is constantly pulling these things together. So uh, in, in verse 1, he talks about the demonic, right? He, he talks about this demonic. This, we're talking about this spiritual thing, the demonic, this dimension where the this demonic exists, but in the same breath, in the same sentence, he's talking about teaching. In the same sentence he talks about demonic, he talks about teaching. In the same sentence that he talks about this spiritual thing called faith, he talks about truth. In the same sentence that he talks about this spiritual thing called, and, and this thing called life that you live, he talks about doctrine. In one sentence he's talking about the, the laying on of hands and the passing on of a spiritual gift, and the next he's talking about nurturing that gift through reading and, and teaching. So Paul is constantly pulling together these things that we would normally separate. Paul pulls them together. For, for Paul, all of these things are deeply spiritual, all of them, including the things you think about and the way that you think, and the way that you think about them. These all have spiritual 
consequences. It's not this is spiritual, that's not. It all has spiritual consequences. Does Paul care about your feelings and emotions? Absolutely he does. But he sees our feelings and emotions and our thoughts so deeply connected at such a profound level, connected and intertwined with each other, that to address your thoughts and thinking is to begin to address your feelings and emotions as well. It just is. Let, let me give you an example of how I think this might work itself out sometimes. Um, you know, sometimes you get, a, do you ever have that gut feeling about something? You have a gut feeling about something and you know there's something wrong? I mean, you're not sure what it is, but you just, you just have this gut feeling. There's something up. There's something wrong. You can't put your finger, you don't have all the details. And it's a nagging feeling. It won't leave you alone. And in the end, you, you, you go with that feeling. You act on that. And it turns out you are absolutely right. Ever had that experience? Yeah, some of you have had that experience. Um, uh, it wasn't long ago I was sat in my office praying about a, a course. We were presented with all sorts of courses and material at the church here. And so I was praying about this course and I just had this sense, there was this gut feeling that something was wrong. I wasn't sure what it was I was seeing, but I had this gut feeling that there was something just not right. And so I prayed this strange prayer. I said, God, would you show me the heart and the mind of the person who put this course together? And it's a strange prayer because I haven't prayed that before or since. But immediately I had this sense that this man had, had uh, cheated on his wife with a younger woman while he was running the course. And, and that uh, not only that, but instead of repenting and turning back to his wife, he abandoned her, divorced her, and married this younger woman. And, and then I had this sense that it wasn't just once, but twice. Not once, but twice. So he abandoned this woman, this second wife, and shortly after divorcing her, married his third wife. Now look, there, there, is, there is grace and there is forgiveness for all the mistakes. I have dear friends who have made these same mistakes. Dear friends. That's not what we're talking about. The point is, I had never read this stuff about him. I didn't know these facts about him. No one had told me these facts about him. Um, I'd never met the guy. But I was spot on on every one of those details. Now, I just want to stop there because I want you to hear what I'm going to say next because it's, it's important. Sometimes we can't think fast enough to piece together everything we're seeing. Right? So sometimes we can't access all the, every, all the information that's in the back of our minds, right, all at once. Sometimes we can't do that. And this is where our feelings and emotions can prompt us, and, and, and they can give us insight into, into a, the specifics of a situation. Sometimes that, that happens, right? But here's the catch. Here's the catch. If your thinking is screwy in the first place, Right? If, if, if we're not thinking clearly, in, the first, if we're, in other words, if we're not rooted in truth, if we're not grounded in doctrine, if we are not shaped by good teaching, then, then our feelings and emotions will more often than not lead us astray. I mean, they, they will betray us every time. You know, if, we, if we want to have an emotional intelligence, if we want to be able to read our feelings correctly, if we want our feelings to actually give us access to uh, re, the reality of a situation, Right? If we want to be open to the promptings of the Spirit through our feelings, then we better get our thinking straight first. If we don't, our feelings will lead us astray, and then we'll be led astray by people who can manipulate our emotions and our feelings. This is what Paul's concerned about. He's concerned about, about these people who will they'll be led astray by the things taught by demons, verse 1. They'll be led astray by, by teaching that comes through hypocritical liars, verse 2. And one day you wake up and you find yourself being led by a guy who is lining his pockets with your money and he's lying to you and in the end he will abandon you as he will abandon his family and his own friends. 
So Paul says, you know, we, we've got to get rooted in this. In fact, here's what he says in verse 15. He says, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them. Another translation says, immerse yourselves in them. Another says, devote yourselves to them. Give yourselves wholly to them. Immerse yourselves. I like that translation, immerse yourself. What does this immersing ourselves in truth and it look like? What, what does this look like? Uh, N.T. Wright invites us to imagine it uh, this way. He, he says, uh, imagine that we find uh, a Shakespearean play which no one knew existed. Well, I don't know. We, we find it in some room where it's under a stack of other papers and, and uh, gathering dust and the paper's starting to rot and the ink is fading. But we find this Shakespeare play that no one knew existed. And there's only one thing. It's not complete. It has uh, five parts, but only four parts are completed. And, and the, fifth, the fifth part is only, he started it, but I guess Shakespeare must have died before he, he uh, got the chance to finish it. Now, N.T. White says that in this situation, what we might want to do is we might want to find ourselves, if we wanted to put this play on, because we find it so rich and compelling, and, uh, and we're like, wow, we need to put this play on anyway. But now we just need to figure out how this is going to end. How's this fifth act going to wrap, wrap up? What's going to happen in the fifth act? So he says what you might want to do in that situation is to find yourself some Shakespearean actors who are familiar with maybe familiar is not the right word, immersed, right, to borrow Paul's language, immersed in all of Shakespeare's works and are so immersed in, in the first four acts of this play that are complete, so immersed that they, they know the big picture, they can see how each one of these acts connects to the other and, and they can see uh, that how the, the story flows, they've got a good sense of the continuity and flow of the story. They have a sense of where this story is heading, right? And, and, and on the details, they, they can see the characters in this, in this play, and they know them, they're so familiar and intimately know these characters, each one of them, their, their feelings, their emotions, the, the, the idiosyncrasies, the subtleties, with, and, and the relationships between each one of these characters. They kind of see where those are heading as well. N.T. Wright says it's those people those people who have immersed themselves in this way, who could give us a wholly appropriate, even though there's no official script for the fifth act, they could give us a wholly appropriate, improvised fifth and final act. They could improvise it for us. Those are the people who could do it. Of course, the first four acts would act as the authority for what goes on in the fifth act, right? Um, but the fifth act would not just be a simple repetition of everything that's gone before. It couldn't be, right? That, but there would be an appropriate continuity uh, in terms of storyline, plotline, in terms of character development, there would be an appropriate fit with what has taken place before. Well, N.T. Wright says that we are in a similar situation. He says this. He says, imagine that the biblical story consists of five acts. Creation, act one. Fall, okay, that's man's rebellion against God, act two. God's dealing with Israel, act three. Jesus coming, act four. And then the writing of the New Testament would form the beginning of the fifth act. And so he says the church lives under the authority of this story. Part of the church's task is to reflect on draw out and implement the significance of the first four acts. We are required to offer an improvisory performance of the final act as it leads up to and anticipates intended conclusion. You know, training in godliness is about becoming the kinds of people who are so immersed in the story that God is telling, truth, doctrine, uh, 
good teaching, in where we're so immersed in the story that God is telling, that we're the ones who can spontaneously improvise a wholly appropriate fifth and final act. Does Paul leave room for spontaneity? Sure he does, yes. But perhaps not in the way that the culture tends to talk about spontaneity. You know how last week we talked about it being this thing that this is, I'm, I'm just going to do what, feel, what I feel like any time, right? Perhaps, it, perhaps it's a different way of talking about spontaneity. Um, Wright says it this way. He says, the way our culture talks about spontaneity is a parody. It's a caricature of what godliness will produce when it has its full effect. It tries to get in advance and without paying the true price what godliness offers further down the road. It tries to get in advance and without paying the true price what godliness offers further down the road. Does Paul, back to our three questions, does Paul leave room for the mysterious, the transcendent, the inexplicable? Does Paul leave room for our feelings and emotions? Does Paul even leave room for spontaneity? Yes, yes, and yes. Absolutely, he does. Yes, he does. But perhaps it's only when we're really rooted in truth. When we we are so immersed and given wholly to the story that God is telling, that our spontaneous feelings and emotions will more often than not lead us to that experience of the transcendent, the inexplicable, the mysterious, as Paul puts it right at the end of this book, actually, to Timothy, the immortal, invisible, God-only wise who lives in unapproachable light. Let's come before God in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you care about every aspect of our being. Father, we want to be the kind of people who are so plugged into reality, so plugged into the story, immersed in the story, given wholly to the story that you were telling, that we would be the ones who would be able to spontaneously respond in a godly way and improvise that fifth act until you return, Lord Jesus. Father, help us in these coming days to to immerse ourselves in new ways in this story. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name and to your glory. Amen.